0: Hey, Kelly Nelson here. Thought I would share with everyone listening on the POM network uh, some audio that I've been doing the last few months for the North South Connection podcast feed, which, um, for those who don't know, spun off from the Place to Be Nation podcast feed. So, you know, we all go way back there. And they do a show called Chrono So which is basically a a look at all the WWF shows starting from 1985 or like the pay-per-views and Saturday night's main events and and TV from that time too and um each match is reviewed by someone different and it's all edited together by Ryan Gray from Touchdowns to Turnbuckles and so yeah I've been doing a few of those I did one for WrestleMania 4 for WrestleFest for um Survivor Series, and for also uh, another match. Anyway, I won't get too, uh, too much into detail because you're going to hear it all anyway. So yeah, it's, uh, I guess, uh, random musings on WWF in 1988, and uh, in particular, random musings on Coco Beaver's tights. Hope you enjoy. Later. Hello, Kelly Nelson here emerging from the podcaster's graveyard to wrap with you fine folks about the six man tag from WrestleMania four on one side, you have our heroes, the British Bulldogs, Dynamite Kid and Davey Boy Smith, along with their Bulldog Matilda, and they are partnered with Coco Beware. Uh, Accompanied by Frankie, the parrot. And on the other side, the bad guys, we got Tama and Haku, the Islanders, and they are teamed up with their manager, Bobby, the brain Heenan. Now, this match was a few months in the making. There was an angle On the December 26th, 1987 episode of Superstars, where the Islanders and the Bulldogs had a match. And during that match, Heenan kidnapped or dognapped Matilda and ran to the back. And the next week, Jack Tunney, president of the WWF, stated that if the Islanders and Bobby Heenan did not return matilda to the british bulldogs they would be or until they returned matilda to the british bulldogs they would be indefinitely suspended and i looked around on the history of wwe.com to sort of get more info on this feud i remember the the big picture stuff but i don't remember the little details and there's actually not too much um on that site about it Eventually, the Islanders are reinstated, and it seems like they just gave Matilda back to the Bulldogs. But there was a period where the Islanders would come down to the ring with a dog, or with a leash that was supposed to be um, leading Matilda, but it was an invisible Matilda, so it was just this leash, you know, dangling kind of it was stiffened to make it look like there was an invisible dog and I don't know how long that went on for and I know there was interviews I, I saw this briefly on YouTube um, a few days ago I didn't watch the whole <laughs> promo or, or really any of it just other than the avatar uh, image or the thumbnail image for the video and uh, it's clear that Davy Boy Smith's really broken up about this and, and and sobbing while i guess dynamite's the one who's got to keep keep a stiff upper lip and keep it together and deliver a stern warning to the islanders to return matilda and at some point they did because matilda is with the bulldogs as they come out for this grudge match and right away the islanders come out first with heenan and we see that heenan in a great touch, is wearing what Gorilla Monsoon on commentary calls an attack dog outfit. And of course, Gorilla is totally outraged. Um, but this is great, of course, uh, Heenan to get heat for being so cowardly um, that he would resort to wearing this attack dog outfit. And uh, one thing that struck me here was the Islanders' music, which is um, sort of like Kamala's, you know, a r- bunch of random jungle sounds and i just i don't remember that at all i don't know how long they had this music for maybe they had it for quite a while but i don't remember it and this is coming from a guy who once had a podcast called tag teams back again where we watched a lot of islanders matches uh, myself and the great marty Slees, and we we devoted a lot of time to the islanders we even reviewed this match from wrestlemania 4 i don't remember reviewing it but i checked the uh, archives of tag teams back again and indeed we did review it but i don't remember the music anyway the bulldogs come down with coco and there's no bell to start the match so someone uh, forgot to do that um wrestlemania 4 not exactly the greatest of all wrestlemanias um and this is another uh <laughs> part to it maybe they forgot to uh to have someone be the, the bell ringer for the evening. I don't know. Anyway, Dynamite Kid comes in, hot start. Um, yeah, the, the baby faces dominate as uh, baby face tag teams are wont to do at this time. You get a long heel and peril sequence. Both Bulldogs get to shine. Coco tags in and gets a nice shine. And. We have a pretty great collection of talent here. I just want to mention this before I go any further. You know, the Islanders, I've always liked them. They're an underrated, great tag team. They were around for probably about a year and a half total, uh, but they really came into their own with the heel turn in May, I believe, of 1987. And uh, Tama really was a great heel, had great heel facial expressions. And um, unfortunately, they didn't last too long. Tama left abruptly, not too long after WrestleMania 4. And then Haku, of course, had a pretty famous run as King Haku. And um, later, you know, becoming like this great, legit, tough guy. And and, and in a lot of like stiff matches uh, in WCW with Barbarian and such um, as a tag team there. And the Bulldogs, of course, had a great run. But that was a few years in the past. Dynamite Kid was sensational at his peak in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, But back issues had sabotaged his career. And then you have Coco Beware, who was great in Memphis in the early 80s and in Mid-South. And he came to the WWF. He was super over, but he wasn't really ever given too much uh, to sink his teeth into. And, you know, he rarely lost, but he he just rarely ever uh, got into anything, um, any meaningful feuds or or matches, really. And that's a shame because he could really go. And then, of course, you have Bobby Heenan, one of the greatest managers of all time, but also a great wrestler in his own right. Uh, We don't have the footage necessarily to judge just how great he was as a wrestler because his peak in that regard would have been in the 60s and 70s. But there is enough, I think, out there to see that, yeah, if if we indeed had more footage, we'd be considering him as like this dual threat, all-time great manager and maybe an all-time great wrestler as well. And Heenan's, um, you know, great in this, uh, in the, the dog, the anti-dog, attack dog outfit. And um, yeah. And then on commentary, this is mm-hmm. Gorilla and Jesse, and I was, uh, if I'd have been, uh having something to drink or add something in my <laughs> drink in my mouth at this time i've done a spit take at jesse's line of heenan looks like a chinaman which yeah well, we've come a long way that's all i'll say about that i mean <laughs> um yeah if i was to go back and, and listen to a lot of wwf matches and other uh matches <laughs> from this era i'm sure uh There'd be a lot of uh, things that would sound pretty strange to modern ears, and that one, yeah, that one hit me like a punch in the face. Back to the match, uh, Keenan, of course, tags in when uh, finally the, the face are incapacitated, so he can get in a couple of uh, cheap stomps and then immediately tags out. So yeah, no, nothing sustained from him. Some more random observations... Coco Beware's trunks have WWF in small letters on the, the back for some reason. I, I know he's worn these trunks a few times. I just I wonder what his reasoning was when he had these made. It's like, what do you want on your trunks, Coco? Oh, just WWF will do. That's, you know, where I wrestle. Um, Heenan taking great bumps from Coco's offense. And the Islanders. So here we go to the finish. It's not a very long match, just uh, under eight minutes. The Islanders cheat, of course, and uh, Coco is disabled. The Bulldogs are out of the ring. And to add insult to injury, to make this like a totally great heel win, they drop Heenan on top of Coco. So when the referee finally comes around to making the count, Heenan gets the pin on Coco. And the Islanders and Heenan win this match. This is something that I remember when I saw this as a kid, you know, ten years old, for the first time, just being totally outraged that you know a non wrestler, a manager uh, like Bobby Heenan, <laughs> got the win in a match. Um, I it would just I was so into it kayfabe at that time, and so much for the good guys that this just you know angered me to no end. But of course, it's a great great heel finish and you may wonder like why didn't the bulldogs and coco win you know shouldn't they have got vengeance finally for the whole matilda angle but they did run rematches of this after wrestlemania so they wanted to keep the heat on the heels um the only problem is uh i think tama was still with them for a few weeks and maybe was part of some of the rematches but he left um, they actually brought in Affy as a third Islander just before Tama left for like a ceremony in the ring or maybe in like a, a match, I guess, on, on Superstars. And then after Tama left, of course, Affy took Thomas' place in the six-man tags. And uh, the only one I, I've seen is from Philly, from the Spectrum, uh, probably about a month after this, maybe into May. I'm not sure. Exactly, but it's uh, Haku, Afi and Bobby Heenan again in the Attack Dog outfit against the Bulldogs and Coco um, in a basically a rematch from WrestleMania 4. So they did run it a few more times, and then the Afi version of the Islanders didn't last very long because I think he was released, or he left, I think released because maybe of drug issues. Anyway, well, I don't want to start any rumors here, but the Islanders were no more and like I said this wasn't much of a match it's it was you know not super highly important in the grand scheme of things for the whole card and you know WrestleMania 4 is famous for having or infamous for having you know not the greatest of crowds a lot of non-wrestling fans apparently were in the crowd who got free tickets from Trump's casino there's not much heat like the acoustics were just horrible And even for the matches that had Hogan and and, uh, Savage and and Andre and stuff, there was not a lot of heat, but uh, there was not much heat at all for this match. Anyway, great collection of talent Um, at varying degrees of their peaks. Some passed their peaks, some still had their peaks yet to come. And then you had, of course, Bobby Heenan, one of the all-time greats. And that was always a treat. So that's all for me. Take care, everybody. I'm sure you'll hear my voice again on one of these shows somewhere down the line. Peace. Of the Wrestling Show. Hey, Kelly Nelson here to talk to you about Bret Hart versus Bad News Brown. So I'm I'm quickly becoming an expert on this feud from 1988. I uh, reviewed um a match that they had against each other from the Spectrum from May May 21st with uh, Ryan Gray a week or so ago. And that's going to be on YouTube. So I thought when it came to picking matches for this show, I'd I'd remain consistent and uh, keep going with this feud. And of course, I mean, this is a as a Calgary boy, this uh, this feud's right up my alley with uh, Bret Hart and Bad News Allen. And um, speaking of which, I thought before I'd get into the match, I'd give a little history on the two men and uh, their time before the WWF, and and encounters they had in Calgary. Uh, Both started around the same time, 1977, 78. Uh, Brett in Calgary, of course. News, though, was um, actually started in Japan, where he was presented as, like, you know, what he was. He was a judo expert, and he legit did win a bronze medal at the 1976 Montreal Summer Olympics. So he wrestled in Japan a lot. He actually had a first stint in the WWF slash WWF in seventy eight seventy nine, that's totally forgotten. Is never was never, of course, re- referenced in nineteen eighty eight when he came back, and he wrestled basically um, under his, his real name of Alan Coge. and um, yeah, he didn't really have much to do there. He was on a, at least one Madison Square Garden show in a tag match, I believe. And I'm actually not too much of an expert on that uh, era of, of uh, bad news. I should, uh, I should check some more matches out, see what's out there. Could be interesting. And so news came to Calgary in 1982. And this is where he he got over huge. He was billed as the ultimate warrior. So he was the original ultimate warrior. Um, wrestled as, uh, bad news Allen, of course, in Calgary. Be- quickly became the top heel. And uh, eventually feuded with Brett, who was basically the top babyface. And that happened in 1983. Uh, there is a ladder match between the two of them out there from Calgary. Uh, of course, clipped, but it, it's out there if you can find it. And something I found interesting when I did a bit of research was that uh, Brett and Bad News teamed uh, with each other in Japan uh, several times between 1982 and 1984 um, against Japanese wrestlers. And that was not uncommon in, in New Japan and in all Japan to have two um, wrestlers who would, you know, be feuding with each other or opposite sides of the heel face divide in North America team with each other when uh, they came went on tour in Japan because uh, the fans in Japan didn't know or most uh, <laughs> the vast majority didn't know about uh, what was going on in North America. So now we go to 1988 and the feud that started at WrestleMania four at the end of the Battle Royal. And I looked in to see, you know, how many times they wrestled, you know, where they wrestled, if uh, what matches between them were televised. And looking at the big, you know, major arenas, uh, they wrestled at Madison Square Garden, Maple Leaf Gardens, the Spectrum, and, and Boston Garden. And those matches were all televised. And like I said, Ryan and I watched the one from the spectrum, um, from May. Um, they only wrestled once in Madison square garden, once in Maple leaf gardens and once at the spectrum and all were the same uh, result, 20 minute time limit draw. But in Boston, they had two matches, the first being a time limit draw and the second being, uh, news winning by cheating. And we're going to see with this match at WrestleFest, I think it's probably basically is the same match as the the Boston rematch, as far as the finish goes anyway. And they wrestled in their old battleground of Calgary on Canada Day, July 1st, 1988. So they did get uh, one match in Calgary from this feud, which was kind of neat. And I was also just looking to see, you know, if this uh Wrestlefest match was the last time they would wrestle because this was basically at the end of the feud and and um the Hart Foundation were reformed and would go on to have a babyface run right after this S- but no they actually had uh more matches in 1989 late 1989 and January 1990 10 or so matches this was when Brett um was doing a lot of singles work again um after the Hart's had a good uh, run as, uh, as a babyface tag team and uh, news was kind of in between things. So they went back on a few house shows and, and, and wrestled each other, but none of those matches were televised. So onto the match, here we are Milwaukee County stadium, 25,866 in attendance, nice looking crowd. Uh, it looks like more than that actually. Um, so yeah, the WWF was very good at shooting these shows, whereas some uh, promotions would have similar attendances, but they're, you know, the, the shooting of the the matches and of, of just the, the stadium made it look like there was, you know, the, there was a lot of empty seats and not so here. Um, it looks uh, pretty damn full. Uh, we have a pretty bad commentary team. Well, mostly it's 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 a pretty bad superstar Billy Graham commentary. Sadly, uh, one of the great promos, one of the great heels of all time, but not a very good commentator. And uh, in this match, he he's he's basically annoying. He keeps referring to Bad News Brown as bad the Bad News Man, which I found quite annoying. Anyway. Sticking with Superstar, he does approve of Brett's look. Um, You know, one charismatic wrestler to the next. He loves Brett's hair and and specifically his sunglasses. Uh, He thinks they're cool. So here we go. Great bumping from the start by Brett. uh, But he quickly reverses things and goes on the offensive. And we get some nice near falls throughout the match. The first one by Brett off a top rope elbow drop. That looked really nice. And there's great, very good heat for this match. I was kind of surprised. I was thinking, oh, maybe the crowd might not be too into it. But no, they were into it. Uh, bad news is over as a heel for sure. And Brett was over to a certain extent as a babyface here. But just as I remarked, or Ryan and I talked about during the Spectrum match, Brett was just not quite ready for the big time here. And, and he himself admitted as much um, later on. Back to the commentary. Uh, so we have um, Sean Mooney on Play by Play, Lord Al Hayes here, along with superstar Graham. And Hayes gets off this line, quote, as our colleague Gorilla Monsoon says, and this is referring to Bret Hart, his excellence is absolute perfection. Uh, no, no, Lord L. Gorilla did not, in fact, say that. But um, to his credit, Hayes does quickly correct himself and says, Brett, the excellence of execution. News whiffs on the Ghetto Blaster. So we're getting close to the finish here. Um, it was a good back and forth match. And the crowd pops big for the Miss Gitto Blaster because that was, of course, News's finish. And he was undefeated at this time. So um, you know that was a very believable uh, setup here for the finish. And after that, Brett throws um, Brown to the outside and we get a nice tope by Brett on news. A, kind of an underrated move in Brett's arsenal was his tope um, and it looked good here. And now we get to the finish. News reverses a roll up and uses the tights for leverage, and you know that protects Brett it. Good heel win. Um, We get an anvil run in immediately after the finish. And him and Brett sort of knock Bad News uh, out of the ring and back in the ring and then out of the ring again and chase him away. And that uh, affirms that, indeed, the Hart Foundation are back. And uh, as I said, they're pretty much headed towards, um, well, a world title, world tag team title match with Demolition at SummerSlam and going on from there. So I thought, yeah, this was a good match and could have been something special with more time. We only got six minutes and 26 seconds here, but it was wrestled at a pretty brisk pace, no downtime, and Brett looked good, Bad News looked good. These guys had good chemistry together. Uh, It's too bad we didn't get a bit more, but this match, in the grand scheme of things, wasn't very important, but what we did get was, was pretty good. So, yeah, um, I don't know if I'm going to check out some more matches. I think I've seen pretty much what there is to see as far as like the, the variety of matches. Cause basically they either did a 20 minute draw or, um, or this with, the uh, bad news cheating to get the win. So I think I've seen, uh, enough of this feud, but it's a good feud, a nice little, uh, underrated, gem of a feud, uh, from 1988. And, uh, yes, I am now officially the world's foremost expert on it. Anyway, uh, I'm sure you'll hear from me again, probably at SummerSlam. Peace, everybody. Hey, Kelly Nelson here to talk to you about what was obviously the most important and memorable part of SummerSlam 88, the brief recap following the British Bulldogs' Fabulous Rougeau's draw that explains why Brutus Beefcake will not be able to face the Honky Tonk Man in an Intercontinental title match later in the card. Monsoon on commentary says we have some very important news And of course, this is about Beefcake's injury, and this happened against Ron Bass on Superstars. So, I'll go into a little bit of info that the uh, telecast doesn't. So this Superstars was taped August 3rd in Wheeling, West Virginia, and it aired August 27th, two days before SummerSlam. So, For fans, as far as they knew, going into the show, Beefcake was challenging Honky Tonk Man for the IC title in a rematch from WrestleMania IV. Probably a lot of people anticipated this being when Brutai finally wins the IC belt after a long chase. But no, he is injured. And so we go to this angle where Brutus was in the middle of putting away an enhancement talent named Tony Burton and a little bit about Burton here. So he worked enhancement matches for the WWF in 88, 89, 90 and 91. This was actually his first ever enhancement match for the company. Previously, he'd been working in Memphis where he once worked as Ninja. I'm assuming under a mask, but I'm not sure. I'm just going by what I have here at wrestling data. Dot com my go-to resource for information on enhancement talent and otherwise. So back to this angle, we have Bass come out attacking Brutus, and I didn't remember this. Like I of course remember this angle, or I've seen this angle, but I didn't remember why Brutus was attacked by Bass. Like what had happened to uh, precipitate this attack. So I went and checked out some info, of course, back on WrestlingData.com. And apparently the week before, so on the August 20th Superstars, also taped in Wheeling, West Virginia, Beefcake stopped Ron Bass from choking jobber Jim Evans. And just a bit on Jim Evans here. uh, He was also a longtime enhancement talent. And he worked more extensively for the WWF than Tony Burton did starting in 1987 and all the way through to 1992. But back to this, uh, superstars, August 20th, like I said, so prior to this, Bass had been choking enhancement talent after beating them with his whip, Miss Betsy. And this had been going on for weeks. So beefcake finally had seen enough, came out, stopped bass from choking poor jim evans and he not only cut up bass's cowboy hat with his hedge clippers but he cut up miss betsy so bass i guess had to go maybe uh go to a special store and get a new miss betsy order a miss betsy um to be delivered to him i'm not sure what the process was but he got a new miss betsy and now we're going back to the angle where Bass gains his revenge on Beefcake for the, the cutting of the whip and the hat. I mean, yeah, Brutus, well, I guess he was justified in cutting up both the hat and the whip since uh, Bass was such a dick and choking the enhancement talent. So, yeah, I guess it was justified. What I, I don't know if what comes up next here in the angles justified, but uh, anyway, it, it's, it's violent. And for 1988, it was, it was quite violent. So after attacking Beefcake, as he has, as I've already stated, enhancement talent Tony Burton in a sleeper hold, he starts to choke Beefcake as he had with the enhancement talents for most of 1988. But on top of this, he goes out and he grabs his spurs, because he is a cowboy after all. And apparently they were quite sharp. Um, I don't know if that's common. I guess you want to keep your spurs sharp because you have to poke the horse with them. So these were razor-sharp spurs. And he starts to carve up Brutus Beefcake's forehead like he's Abdullah the Butcher and Brutus Beefcake as Carlos Colon. And this is some bloodbath from Puerto Rico circa 1984. And what makes this a memorable angle is that the red X saying censored comes up on the screen so that we cannot really see the blood oozing from British Beefcake's forehead. And this calls back to something that the WWF did in the early 80s, um, also with a cowboy wrestler, coincidentally enough. That was Blackjack Mulligan when he used his dreaded, claw hold enhanced by the black glove which uh, caused enhancement talent to bleed and the red X was used I'm thinking that they used the red X for other things but I can't off the top of my head uh, remember after this in 1991 the red X is definitely used when Jake Roberts uses his cobra to bite the arm of Randy Savage and, yeah, so apparently, and I don't remember this, I don't think I was watching around this time. In 1988, I took kind of a break from watching wrestling after WrestleMania 4, and I didn't really get back into it until after SummerSlam, I think right after SummerSlam. So I missed this, but apparently on Maple Leaf Wrestling, which was the Canadian version of Superstars, we got the uncensored, no-red-X version of this angle. And I should have looked it up on YouTube, but I didn't. But that's cool. Us Canadians are maybe made of a little tougher stock than Americans because we're living in such a cold country, so maybe they thought we could handle the blood. I don't know. Anyway, so this this starts a full-fledged feud. And uh, just one more comment on on the angle is that, of course, eventually after quite quite a long time, um, Scraping of, of Beefcake's forehead with the spurs. Finally, we get baby faces in jeans to the rescue. You know, that was a common thing back then. Baby faces after wrestling, hanging out in the back, just wearing their jeans. You know, that's just what wrestlers did. So we had the rockers, we had Lanny Poffo. We also have Coco Beware coming out for the save, but he is still rocking his special WWF tights that I talked about a few um, shows ago. he wore at Wrestlemania 4 and so yeah Coco wouldn't put on the jeans because he he paid a lot of money for those WWF special tights so immediately following this angle like the immediate uh, result is that Beefcake couldn't um, wrestle Honky Tonk Man on the September 3rd Superstars so after Summerslam, Jack Tunney, president of the WWF, announced that Ron Bass was fined $10,000, which was a a hefty amount in 1988 for this heinous attack. Um, They, of course, feuded for quite a few months after this. Funny that prior to this feud, prior to this angle, the last thing Ron Bass had been uh, doing in the WWF was on the losing end of a totally forgotten to time feud against Junkyard Dog, who was uh, playing out the string at this time. So he really had nothing going on. Beefcake was much higher on the totem pole. So they feuded for months. Uh, Eventually we get on a Saturday night's main event, I believe in December of 88, uh, a hair versus hair match, I guess it was, because as it ended, uh, Bass had his head shaved by Brutus Beefcake, which was cool. I think it was the first time I ever saw a head shaving on on video. I'd saw, you know, pictures of them in the magazines. So, so that was cool. I've always liked a good uh, head shaving hair versus hair match. It's definitely a lost art in wrestling. So... One last thing, on the first ever WWF show I went to live in person at the Olympic, what was known as the Olympic Saddledome in Calgary back then, on January 8th, 1989, I did get to see on the undercard, Brutus Beefcake versus a Shorn Ron Bass, and I think Bass didn't last too much longer after that, so yeah, the first card I ever went to, I did see these two wrestle. And that's about all I got. This was a cool little angle, violent, bloody angle for 1988. So yeah, everybody out there, enjoy the rest of the show. I know it's going to be hard to live up to the greatness of this angle for pure excitement and drama, but I guess there's still some good stuff ahead. Anyway, peace. Later, guys. Hey, folks, Kelly Nelson here to talk to you about the main event of Survivor Series 1988, a.k.a. Chapter 3 in my examination of Coco Beware's WWF trunks from 1988. So on one side, we have the big boss man and Akeem, the African Dream co-captains, and they are with the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, King Haku, and the Red Rooster, and they are going up against the Mega Powers co-captains Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, and they are with the mighty Hercules, the aforementioned Coco Beware, and Hillbilly Jim. So I'll be uh, discussing the uh, the babyface team especially, and, and, and the, the makeup of it. It's, it's very unusual. Anyway, so the bad guys come out too, Jive Soul Bro. Unfortunately, only Akeem gets into it, as he always does, dancing down to the ring. Uh, none of his teammates uh, decide to dance along with him, um, unlike Harley Race would do in Italy. I think that's coming up in a month or so where he uh, gets into the spirit of things and, and dances along to Jive's Soul, bro uh, when he was teaming with Akeem. So, here we go. Good guy's time. Macho and three of the teammates come out to Pomp and Circumstance, of course, and Macho is the WWF world champion at this time. But when you're teamed with Mr. Hulk Hogan, you're not going to have Hulk Hogan come out to anyone's music but his own. So Hogan, of all the wrestlers uh, this evening, I believe, gets his own personal entrance to I Am A Real American. So that got me uh, wondering, though, if the whole co-captains deal was was like done just because they didn't want Hogan to be the captain and Savage to be just a regular guy on the team or vice versa— and so they came up with co-captains, so you could have Hogan and Savage on equal on an equal level, and then to make it consistent, you had to uh, apply it to all the other teams throughout the evening. I- I'm wondering if that's uh, why that happened, because there wasn't co-captains in 1987, and there wouldn't be co-captains, um, I don't believe, going forward for future Survivor Series. It was just for the 1988 version. Anyway, something to ponder. So we start with, well, first let's... Uh, Go into the the, the babyface team and the interesting inclusions of two members in particular. So you have, of course, the Mega Powers. Then you have the Mighty Hercules. That made sense. He had just turned babyface and he was feuding with Million Dollar Manta DiBiase, who's on the other side. But then you have Coco Beware and Hillbilly Jim, two wrestlers who, in 1988, especially Hillbilly Jim, were kind of doing nothing. Hillbilly Jim, it seemed like he hadn't done anything in, in ages. And I remember when I first saw this team and the listing, I was really confused as to why Hillbilly Jim and Coco Beware were on this team with, you know, Hogan and Savage, two you know, supreme main eventers. Coco, of course, you know, he'd been around for a few years. But by this point in, in late 1988, he was, he was an afterthought. And it just it, it seemed odd. But, I mean, I guess they had to fill out the, the team with uh, – Somebody, so they picked these two guys, and they're basically just warm bodies there to do quick jobs. But since we're talking about Coco Beware, uh, now's the time to continue my examination of Coco's WWF trunks. This may be the final chapter, I'm not sure. So, to recap, Coco's been wearing um, trunks with the letters WWF on the bum for. Uh, most of the year, I think. Anyway, it's come up at WrestleMania 4 in a match that I talked about. It came up when he uh, did a run-in to save Brutus Beefcake from the heinous attack of Outlaw Ron Bass with the Spurs right before SummerSlam and and now here. So, um, one thing about this uh, example of him wearing the WWF trunks is I know on certain releases, future releases of of Survivor Series 88, um, of course, after the whole WWF uh, ruling where they they had to get rid of the F, get the F out, and became WWE, they had to blur out the WWF symbol or letters on um, old uh, shows and stuff when they released them on DVD, I think, in particular. And as a result, they had to blur the WWF on Coco's bum for this this match which looked ridiculous and a lot of people not knowing what was on his trunks you know watching this in the future like why is uh, Coco have to have a blurred out ass in uh, Survivor Series 1988 but uh, he did and uh, the reason is because they had to blur the WWF letters lest they uh, have to pay some money to the World Wildlife Fund or whatever the hell it was um So I think I've probably said enough about Coco's trunks for a lifetime. We'll get back to the action. So Coco's in first, sweet power slam and missile drop kick on the red rooster. And uh, then the rooster eats a big boot from Hulk Hogan and a flying elbow to be the first eliminated. So it was kind of funny that the rooster, you know, you would look at the rosters and, you know, yeah, Coco and Hillbilly kind of stand out as like. Head scratchers, but the Red Rooster, of course, is also a head scratcher. And but it really his uh, involvement makes a lot of sense as far as like storylines that were going on at this time go, because he had just been um, recruited basically and added to the Heenan family, and so Bobby Heenan was his manager. So. If you had to, I don't know if this was ever explained on TV in this way, but you could explain it by saying, well, now that Heenan's his manager, he's going to get him more prestigious uh, gigs or get involved in more prestigious matches. So Heenan was able to use his influence to get Rooster in a main event spot, and he immediately shits the bed here by being the first one eliminated. And there's already a dissension between Heenan and Rooster after. Uh, Rooster uh, is pinned and is walking back to the dressing room. You can see Heenan complaining about it. Um, Yeah, so the seeds for what's coming up in the future uh, firmly planted here. And then uh, Hillbilly Jim, basically the the biggest head-scratcher of the night, is quickly disposed of by Akeem right after um, Rooster is eliminated. And then Coco and his uh, sweet blurry ass uh, joins Hillbilly after an Akeem Bossman double team. So quickly, we're down to four on the heel side and three on the good guy's side. And it's not looking good for the Mega Powers and the mighty Hercules. So I just wanted to comment now about the big Bossman and how huge he was in 1988 compared to um, what he would be like in the future. And I mean, size-wise, girth. Um, He was, uh, I don't know how heavy at this point, but he would start to slim down beginning in 1989 and by like 1991 he's he's positively svelte compared to this uh, version of him but he can still i mean in 1988 he was very agile of course um the the extra weight didn't seem to affect him in the slightest bit so now we get the first of what would be two long Hulk Hogan beatdowns um this one comes at the 15 minute mark and yeah it's 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 a classic Hogan beatdown Lots of sympathy for the for the guy in yellow. Um, he tags to Herc to get out of this finally, and, and, and Herc gets his revenge on Ted, or tries to, but then he's distracted by Virgil at ringside. And, of course, you can see this coming a million miles away. Uh, when a babyface is distracted by someone at ringside, the heel will come and roll them up for a pin, a classic finish that is still probably being used multiple times a week in modern WWE, I do don't know. I don't watch the current product anyway, right after that pin, Macho man, Savage comes in, sneaks up and rolls up a gloating Ted DiBiase. So we get two quick eliminations here. It's now three versus two, um, for the heels. Now we get the second Hogan beat down about five minutes after the first at about the 20 minute Mark. Um, I have to say at this point that the crowd is just electric and have been the whole match. And I think for the whole night, they were just on fire. So this crowd in Cleveland uh, deserves a tip of the hat 35 years later for being just amazing on the evening. Lots of energy, lots of heat. Um, We have Bossman stupidly wasting time on an almost finished Hogan You know, I think he gives him his finisher. But then he insists on going to the top rope for a splash, which, of course, he misses. This leads to a hot tag to Macho. At this moment, on the outside, we have some, uh, well, let's say questionable sort of racial heat looking through a 2023 lens when we have Slick on the outside dragging Liz away, um, trying to take her to the back. And uh, yeah... The crowd gets quite upset. I'm not going to point any fingers at a 35-year-old wrestling crowd, but uh, uh, things were a little tense, perhaps. Anyway, Hogan gets handcuffed to the ropes by the big bossman at this point, and, of course, bossman is counted out while he's doing this, so that's a big break for the good guys. Um, Then bossman, as he's already been eliminated, continues to beat on Hogan with the nightstick, um we get great heel heat for this beat down on both hogan and savage of the at this point uh Akeem, of course goes overboard and gets disqualified for yet another big break for the for the good guys so both captains on the heel side that the twin towers are eliminated one by a count out one by dq Um uh, pr- makes it pretty easy for hogan and savage from uh here on in of course looking at it from uh non kayfay perspective, you didn't want um, Bossman to be beat convincingly here because they had a very lucrative series or what would be a very lucrative series of matches between Hogan and Bossman planned for the future that would go on well into 1989. So yes, you didn't want to see anything definitive here. So the beautiful Miss Elizabeth is the hero, actually, this match. She gets the keys from uh, Slick after he'd been downed. Helps Hogan get the handcuffs off. It's now, of course, Hogan and Savage against the, against King Haku. Haku has Savage, you know, uh, totally under control. He's got things well in hand here. And yet another fortunate uh, break for the good guys. We get Haku accidentally kicking a basically unconscious or near unconscious <laughs> macho man into the corner, uh, conveniently right into the waiting arms of Hulk Hogan for the tag. Hogan's in, and yeah, uh, Haku is easily and quickly disposed of to have the the match end with the Mega Powers as the sole survivors and victorious here. If you look at the eliminations, other than the Red Rooster, you got like a fluke roll-up on DiBiase, you got a count-out on Bossman, you got a DQ on Akeem, and you got Haku accidentally kicking Macho Man into Hogan's arms for the hot tag. So really, it was just a bunch of flukes uh, that led to the good guys winning. But, you know, that's how things were done back in those days. We have a memorable post-match celebration where Hogan goes overboard, grabbing Liz, swinging her around, you know, so happy that they won. Of course, Liz helped Hogan get the handcuffs off. But Savage is Still, like recuperating from the, the beating he took in the match, and he sees Hogan and Liz celebrating, and you can clearly see here he's angry. I think this is the first time that they really showed that Savage was angry with Hogan. This, of course, had been simmering on low basically since WrestleMania four, and now you turn the heat up now to to medium, getting closer to high, and uh, things going forward, we'd be um, heading towards the Mega Powers exploding in 1989 but this was sort of the first moment where you really saw for sure that savage you know was gonna eventually turn on hogan anyway this was a very fun match uh despite my qualms with how the uh heels were eliminated but yeah great perfect 1988 late 1980s wwf main event fun we had great heat like i said the crowd was on fire the whole time great healing here by the bad guys and yeah, classic stuff. So that's about it. Um, I'm Kelly Nelson. Check out touchdowns to turnbuckles on the, uh, no, so North South connection, YouTube channel. Uh, Ryan gray is producing. It's me talking about football players that became pro wrestlers. Uh, we've done one episode. I guess by the time this drops, there'll be two episodes out. Um and there's gonna be seven in total, so it's gonna be a thorough uh deep dive on football players who became pro wrestlers and it'll be going all the way until the Super Bowl in February. Okay, guys, peace I'm out.